Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners. We've had a great response to our first three episodes and can't wait to hopefully share more stories with you. The best way for you to help make that happen is by subscribing, writing a review, and recommending Enigma to a friend who you think would enjoy it. Each episode of Enigma takes countless hours to research and produce. It's why we've had to go from releasing Enigma twice a month to once a month for the remainder of the season. Listeners like you and our sponsors make this podcast possible. This episode's sponsor is Reed's Jewelers, your family-owned jeweler trusted for generations. You can visit them online at reeds.com. They have an easy-to-use mobile-friendly website. Browse diamonds, fine jewelry, timepieces, and brands like Forevermark, Tag Heuer, Omega, Pandora, Alex Anani, and much more. One last thing before we start, this week's episode of Enigma has some graphic descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. Now, onto the show. Place is important. We place memorials on battlefields and flowers at crash sites. We connect geographic sites to events. And the more significant the event, the more significant the place becomes. Birth and death. Where we enter this world and where we leave it holds significant power. But in the story we are about to tell, neither the geography nor the events associated with it are simple or easy to mark with a memorial or a cross on the roadside. The place spans hills, valleys, rivers, and meadows. The series of events, a series of deaths, murders, span a decade, leaving a haunting legacy on the beautiful site. Today's story concerns a 23-mile stretch of a road in Virginia. The events associated with it are a series of unusually similar murders occurring between the years 1986 and 1996. When many people think of Virginia, they think of the famous advertising campaign, Virginia is for lovers. In each murder in this story, there are two victims, lovers. Their vehicles are found at different sites along the beautiful geography of a scenic parkway. At the same time, There is another geography in this story, an invisible one, the motives and impulses of a killer's mind. For 30 years, four of the most notorious and mysterious double murders in Virginia history have remained unsolved. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. The Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile stretch of road in Virginia that begins along the southwestern bank of the York River and ends along the northern bank of the James River, connecting the historic triangle of Yorktown, Jamestown, and Williamsburg. Outlined by the National Park Service in 1933, the Colonial Parkway was a departure from road-building traditions of the time. Instead of simply getting someone from point A to point B as quickly as possible, It was designed specifically as a scenic route. 
displaying the area's charms to those who drive along it. It was the first National Park Service roadway of its kind. The design and construction created an environment rich in natural sites with remote corners to get lost in, places for solitude, to adventure into nature, have a picnic, maybe a night of camping. In 1986, Kathleen Thomas, a former U.S. Naval Petty Officer and current stockbroker, and Rebecca Andowski, a student at the College of William and Mary, escaped together along the Colonial Parkway to experience all it had to offer, as well as find a safe place to be themselves. The acceptance that mostly exists today didn't exist 30 years ago. Kathleen and Rebecca often found their way down the Colonial Parkway to be alone together, to be intimate. On the night of Thursday, October 9th, Kathleen drove to Rebecca's in her white Honda Civic, hoping to spend some time together before Rebecca went home on her fall break from school. Rebecca lived in Chandler Hall on the campus of William and Mary, and the dorms were rowdy with students letting off steam before fall break. Kathleen helped Rebecca finish packing her car and together they took off onto the Colonial Parkway, searching for a quiet place where they could be alone. Three days later, a jogger came upon a white Honda Civic that seemed to have slid into the brush, just narrowly avoiding careening into the river. Concerned that there still might be people in the car, the jogger hurried off to alert the authorities. This particular stretch of road was located on the grounds of the U.S. State Naval Supply Facility, which meant that both local police and the FBI responded to the scene. The two teams arrived and worked together to pull the car back from the precipice, and it wasn't until then that they noticed something. Two figures lay slumped in the back seat. When they were able to get into the vehicle, a horrific sight greeted them. Irv Wells, a former FBI special agent, was the agent in charge of this case. Both young women's throat were deeply cut, their heads almost severed. Diesel fuel, as has been reported, was poured over the bodies and attempts were made to ignite it. Both women's wrists and necks were marked with rope burns. They were stuffed in the back seat of their car and their bodies doused in diesel fuel, likely an attempt to set them on fire. When the diesel didn't ignite, it appeared the killer attempted to push the car into the river, but didn't succeed and abandoned the car and the victims. This mode of murder is usually referred to as an overkill, and attributed to crimes of passion or emotion, but all evidence seems to point to an unsettling reality. Whoever had killed Kathleen and Rebecca had been prepared. The killer had used rope to bind the women. They had a knife and performed deeper cuts than necessary, suggesting that this killer hadn't taken someone's life in this way before. They had diesel fuel, but weren't aware that diesel requires a higher flashpoint and can't simply be ignited by a match. They had a plan, but didn't have experience. The following is from an interview on Dark Minds with John Kelly, a criminal profiler. When I look at it, it tells me he's inexperienced. Uh, he's new. He's just getting started. And he's trying to perfect his method of murder. Okay, this is what he's doing. Think about it. First, he strangles them. 
He's not sure if it's working. So to make sure, he cuts their throats. So he doesn't have enough confidence in himself. He's just getting started. And he's going to continue to kill. And he's going to refine his killing. Neither woman's clothes were disturbed. The medical examiner determined that they weren't sexually assaulted. No money, valuables, or personal items were missing. So it appeared theft wasn't the motive. One thing seemed particularly odd. The driver's side window was rolled down. Whoever the perpetrator of this horrible crime was most likely approached as if needing to speak with Kathleen and Rebecca and waited for them to roll down the window before attacking. No rope or knife was found in the immediate area, so we assume the killer brought and fled with the weapons. This left the investigation without much to go on. They did find a clump of hair in Kathleen's hand, presumably from a struggle with her murderer. They tested it, hoping this piece of evidence could steer the investigation, but the results turned up negative for any matches in their system. This left authorities scratching their heads and chasing their tails. On top of that, there was some dispute about which authority had jurisdiction in the investigation. Since it happened on a federal road near the U.S. State Naval Supply Facility, should the FBI take the lead? Or should the state police? Or was it the job of the local sheriff's department? This confusion and bureaucracy made an already incredibly difficult case nearly impossible. Six months after the bodies were discovered, all anyone had was cold leads and dead ends. I just feel terribly, terribly grieved and sorry for the families and the, of the victims. That's got to be very hard. And so I have great disappointment more than frustration. Bob is Rebecca's brother. You know, you try to put it out of your head so you can function on a day-to-day basis. And for me, it's mostly about, it's been about anger that there's somebody out there that committed this crime continued to enjoy their life and liberty after they took the life of my sister. The case was shelved and the active investigation all but came to a halt. But the killer, or killers, did not. David Knobling and Robin Edwards met the night of September 19, 1987 at an arcade and hit it off. They made plans for David to pick her up around midnight to go see the movie Dragnet with some friends. After the movie, the couple said goodbye to their friends and drove David's Black Ford Ranger to Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, located right off the Colonial Parkway. On the morning of September 21, 1987, Park rangers found a black Ford Ranger with the driver's side window rolled down, the radio and windshield wipers on, assorted clothes in the back seat, and the keys still in the ignition. Other than the keys in the clothing, the car was empty. A search of the immediate vicinity revealed no sign of the occupants and no foul play was suspected, so they left the car where they had found it. Two days later, no one had claimed it and the police towed it to David's father's residence. Carl Knobling, David's father, knew something was wrong. It wasn't like David to just disappear. He believed something sinister had happened to his son. On September 23rd, Carl conducted his own search of the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. Bonnie Dodson, Robin's mother, was sick with worry, but there was little she could do. She assumed that Robin had run away from home, which she had done in the past. 
All Bonnie could do was wait for her to come back. Carl Knobling went about searching the wildlife refuge. He eventually approached the edge of the James River. There, he saw something, but he couldn't quite make it out. As he got closer to the water's edge, he slowly realized what he was seeing. His son, David, and Robin, laying at the water's edge, lifeless. David was only wearing the beige pants he had left the house in the night of his disappearance. He had two gunshot wounds, one superficial wound to his shoulder and the other execution style to his head with no exit wound. Robin's shirt was pulled up over her chest and her bra was hanging around her neck. Her jeans were unzipped. She had one gunshot wound to her head. Again, investigators, this time the Isle of Wight County Police, were baffled. With both victims found a ways from the car, the initial assumption was that they went to the river to skinny dip. But it was September. The water near that part of the James River was typically around 40 degrees, and the current quite strong. Eventually, it was postulated that Robin and David were surprised in David's car and then marched away to be murdered. Perhaps that was the origin of the gunshot wound in David's shoulder. The killer wanted to establish control and curtail any possible escape attempts or heroic moments. Then again, all the investigators had was a hunch and not much more. Two murders separated by almost a year. Initially, the killings of Rebecca Dowski and Kathleen Thomas were not connected to those of David Knobling and Robin Edwards. The key difference was the murder weapon, but also the cause of death was completely different. One couple was tied and bound, their throats slit. The other couple was marched from a car at gunpoint and shot. One couple was gay, the other straight. They did have one important thing in common. Both were unsolved and the murderer or murderers still at large. There were other similarities that began to link the two murders together. Both cars had windows rolled down as if approached by an authority figure, and keys, wallets, and other personal items were left in the car, ruling out robbery as a possible motive. And both had occurred on the Colonial Parkway. Keith Call, 20, picked up Cassandra Lee Haley, 18, for their first date from her family's house in Grafton, Virginia on April 9, 1988. Her mother, Joanne, answered the door and let Keith in. It was his first date following his breakup with his previous long-term girlfriend. Keith and Cassandra were both students at Christopher Newport College and had a math class together. The plan was to go to a movie and head back home. Both promised to return by 2 a.m. at the latest. Cassandra had other plans, though. There was a party on University Square that she wanted to go to, and this date with Keith was the perfect cover. The couple arrived at the party around 9 p.m., and it became clear to Keith rather quickly that Cassandra had used their date as a way to get to this party. She wasn't interested in him. Keith stayed and tried to enjoy the party. Around 1.30 in the morning, the two left, presumably to get Cassandra home before her 2 a.m. curfew. They never made it. Keith's red Toyota Celica was discovered abandoned at an overlook on the Colonial Parkway near the York River at 7 a.m. by Keith's father, Richard, who was on his way to work at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. Richard found this odd and got out to take a look. 
The keys were on the driver's seat, the glove box was down, and a watch and glasses were sitting on the dash. Initially, Richard wasn't overly worried, chalking up the abandoned car to general 20-year-old shenanigans. He figured he'd just ask Keith about it when he got home. It wasn't until 9 a.m. when the park rangers discovered the car that it was reported. The scene the rangers came across, though, had one important and unsettling difference. When Richard came upon the car, he didn't recall any clothes anywhere. When the rangers inspected the car two hours after Richard found it, nearly all the clothes that Keith and Cassandra had been wearing the night before were found in the back seat. Had the killer returned the clothes during his two-hour gap? Had he almost been caught? Similar to David and Robin, authorities initially assumed they had gone skinny to being and drowned. But the water was 40 degrees, and Cassandra had a fear of water. She wasn't one to go swimming, especially at 2 a.m. in near-freezing water. After an exhaustive search of the river with no sign of either Keith or Cassandra, foul play was suspected. Keith's red celica was found only three miles from where the bodies of Kathleen and Rebecca were discovered. The elements of Robin and David's murders were eerily similar to Cassandra and Richard's disappearance. Authorities found themselves with few answers, no closer to catching what was now deemed a serial killer. Late in the afternoon on September 4, 1989, Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps packed all of Daniel's belongings into his 1972 gold Chevy Nova and began their trek to Virginia Beach. Daniel was moving out of his parents' house to live with his brother, Clinton. All Daniel's worldly possessions were packed into his car, his radio blasting. The two were about to embark on a new chapter in their lives, one they'd write together. On September 5th at around 1 or 2 a.m., Daniel and Anna Maria stopped at a rest stop in New Kent County on the eastbound side of the Colonial Parkway. They were only two hours into their trip. The next morning, Daniel's gold Chevy Nova was discovered parked midway down a ramp used by big rigs to merge onto the highway going westbound. There was no sign of Anna Maria or Daniel, save for a roach clip with a feather placed carefully on the rolled down driver's side window. It would be another six weeks before two deer hunters stumbled across the couple's remains. They had been covered in a blanket taken from Daniel's car and laid in a shallow grave. The remains were skeletal. What was being approached as a missing persons case with no relation to the Colonial Parkway murders was now a murder. When found, the skeletons had no vestiges of clothing, so it was assumed they were nude when they were killed or at least when they were laid to rest. Anna Maria's skeleton showed scoring that was consistent with knife wounds, while Daniel's remains were too badly decomposed for a cause of death to be determined. The chief detective of the state at the time, Bill Latreal, was resistant to the thought of this case being connected to the other murders. He noted key differences, murder weapon, location, and the lack of motive. But to a community with six similar murders, there seemed to be no other answer. Patterns emerge and assumptions are made. 
But how do you prepare for a pattern that only ever halfway emerges? Young couples and the Colonial Parkway. That's the only consistency. Perhaps the assumed connective nature of the murders kept the killers among us from being suspected. Maybe the insistence that it was a serial killer and not just a rash of random violence kept the authorities looking in all the wrong places. Missed clues and opportunities led to cold cases. To this day, there is no justice. If there was a single person responsible, who was this person? What motivated them? This is John Kelly, criminal profiler. Yeah, I definitely believe these cases were connected. I mean, you've got romance, you've got couples. I'm looking at them being in a pretty much out of the way or secluded area, being in a car. And I'm also looking at a serial killer with this jealous rage. He either can't have a relationship or he is in a relationship where his emotional needs are not being satisfied. He's so angry. He doesn't care if they're heterosexual. He doesn't care if they're homosexual. It's all about the passion. The lack of struggle at each crime scene led some to the assumption that the killer was perhaps a figure of authority, using the power of a uniform to control the victims before they suspected the true nature of their deadly encounter. And while the gender of the attacker is unknown, it's widely accepted that it's a man. A man pretending to be a cop or park ranger, or perhaps he wasn't pretending at all. Is it out of the realm of possibility to think a highway patrolman on a late night shift, driving along the wooded back roads, busting teenagers' parties, responding to vandalized parks, and clearing out lovers' lanes, tapped into some unknowable darkness within themselves and unleashed it on those unlucky enough to pass him on that dark night? Due to the lack of substantial evidence and the chaos surrounding the jurisdiction of the investigating body, the initial investigation of this group of murders fizzled out. The victims' families were left with no answers. It wasn't until 2009 when Fred Atwell, a former deputy in Gloucester, Virginia, noticed that the FBI's crime scene photos had been leaked. This brought new interest in the case. And in 2010, the victims' families reached out to Steve Spingola, a former lieutenant detective from Milwaukee, and a 2001 graduate of the FBI Detective Academy, to take another look at the case. Unfortunately, his findings did little to set their minds at ease. He made no headway with finding the killer, but he did definitely say, in his opinion, that he wasn't looking for a singular killer, but rather killers. He proposed that each of the killings were separate events, pointing out that Richard's car was simply found on the Colonial Parkway while David and Robin's belongings had been stolen. This seemed like two separate individuals were responsible. Spangola proposed that Daniel and Anna Maria's murders were the work of either a police officer or someone impersonating a police officer. The FBI and other surrounding investigative entities involved have long had police officers and police impersonators high on their lists of suspects, but still, no arrests. 
the FBI has also conceded that there is no real evidence that these are the works of a serial killer, but is still working these cases as serial murders due to the similar nature of the crimes. While there have been no arrests, there have been suspects. Fred Atwell, the very man who brought this case back into the public eye, is one of the main suspects in the case. Yet there is nothing definitive. And if he were responsible for any of the murders on the Colonial Parkway, then why would he have shared the crime scene photos thereby bringing more attention to the case? To the outside world, the story often becomes repetitive. An unsuspecting victim or victims are last seen by their close friends and nothing seems to be wrong. Then they leave the party early for some paltry reason or another, wake up early for work, they have a curfew set, and so on and so forth. And that's the last of them. There is no slow, ominous push-in of the camera, no escalation of events in dramatic order. There is life, and then there isn't. There are possibilities, then nothing. The body is found, and those mundane final moments become evangelized. The unknown killer becomes the same sort of imagined thing, a monster or something inhumane masquerading as human, a psychopath, a sociopath, a megalomaniac. It may be easier to blame a monster than to accept random acts of violence. Is some kind of terrible fate at work or does the world show that random, fractal nature of life is to blame? The Colonial Parkway killer could be a retired highway patrolman or a park ranger who was having a bad year and took a horrifying turn to discover a dark territory of their own nature. We may not know much about them. However, we do know one thing. Whoever is responsible is still out there. In fact, Steve Spingola thinks that one of the killers, the one who killed Kathleen and Rebecca, has killed again about 10 years later. On May 19, 1996, Julianne Williams, 24, her girlfriend Laura Lolly Winans, 26, and their golden retriever Taj embarked on a camping trip to enjoy some free time before Julianne started a new job on June 1st. They were both avid hikers and had worked together with Woods Women Incorporated as interns the summer before. They were prepared and ready for their five-day excursion into the Shenandoah National Park off the Blue Ridge Parkway another Virginia scenic byway, similar to the Colonial Parkway. On May 24th, a park ranger dropped them off at the parking lot of Bridal Trail, a popular trail in the Shenandoah National Park. The plan for Lolly, Julie, and Taj was to hike for most of the day along the Bridal Trail, find a good camping site, and stay the night. They went deep into the woods, basking in the glow of a beautiful spring day, going deep down the trail. This was to be their last full day out in the woods. They had to get back because Julie had made an appointment with her roommate to help her clean and pack the apartment. On May 30th, Julie didn't show up to help her friend. This was unlike her, she was known for her dependability. By the next morning, Tom Williams, Julie's father, called for a search and the park rangers mobilized. 
Her car was discovered in a parking lot near the Stonyman Overlook at 10 a.m. that day. The next day, Taj was found wandering around unharmed but hungry in the nearby White Oak Canyon around 4 p.m. Lolly and Julie were found at their campsite at 8.50 that same day. Both women had been bound, gagged, and their throats cut with such excessive force that they were nearly decapitated. Again, their killer vanished without a trace. never know if these murders are connected or if they are isolated incidents, each perpetrated by new murderers or perhaps some combination of the two. But we do know that the Colonial Parkway is still a favorite route for couples to seek some solitude. Indeed, perhaps something in the very geography of those hilly grades and dark wooded turns resonated too deeply with some visitors, stirring up something that had been tucked away in their own nature perhaps a type of jealousy and malice for young lovers. Remember that the Colonial Parkway was designed to get people away from civilization, to give them a route into pure nature. It may be that design worked all too well. Safe travels, listeners. so much for listening to this episode of Enigma. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information on the Colonial Parkway Killer, you can check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We've got photographs of the parkway as well as some of the people mentioned in this story, and links to some online forums working on trying to track down whoever is responsible for the Colonial Parkway murders. You can also find links to our sources there. If you'd like to hear more Enigma, then we need your help. Enigma is now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please subscribe as our subscriber count attracts more listeners. We'd also love if you'd recommend Enigma to a friend or family member who you think would enjoy it. Another way to help is to rate us and write a review on iTunes. If you do, we'll give you a call out in future episodes thanking you for your support. This week we had reviews from C. Meisel and Gem of a Guy. Thanks so much to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot. This episode of Enigma was written and researched by Patrick Basquell, produced and edited by Alex Holscher, additional editing by Rachel Castro and Max Davis, original artwork by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Enigma.